Postal Publishing, The Going Postal Cast, and Christopher Chapman present Incarceration, the serialized weekly podcast performed by the author, Christopher Chapman. For more information, visit www.goingpostalpublishing.com or email him at goingpostalpublishing at gmail.com. This podcast is not suitable for children. It has violence, gore, and lots and lots of naughty words. If you can't handle that, go somewhere else. And now, on with the story, or whatever other crap I decide to come up with. Chapter 23. The television was calling it the case of the century. This was the biggest case in Wisconsin since Jeffrey Dahmer. Media vans from all over the state, as well as Michigan, Minnesota, and CNN, were visible surrounding the courthouse as the unmarked van carrying Jason Rangel approached. Jason stared out of the tinted van, studying the crowd of onlookers. He couldn't believe all of the attention this case was getting. It was as if everybody in Marinette, plus half of Wisconsin, was here to see what was going to happen. I hope you rot, said a male voice from within the crowd, barely audible through the van's windows. The words caused him to wince. Fry, you little bastard, a woman said. Frying was an interesting statement, considering that there were a group of citizens that had recently gone public about trying to bring back the death penalty in Wisconsin. It was the same group that had tried during Dahmer's case. They failed then, and as of his trip into court, had failed now as well. He supposed that he was lucky that something like this happened in Wisconsin. If he'd lived in another state, he might not have been so lucky. He knew what stood before him, and was aware of his chances. Things looked bad. He was thankful that he didn't have one more thing to fear. Signs littered the crowd. Several people carried signs with messages that were eerily similar to the opinions they voiced. He saw... Jason Rangel, equal life sentence. Nobody has the right to murder. Parent killer. Niagara's most wanted, as well as many others. The van did not go to the front entrance. Instead, they went around the side of the building, where there were several guards waiting for the van. There was a small entrance that they intended getting him through unnoticed. The problem was that some had already stumbled upon the secret entrance. The van stopped 15 feet from the entrance. As the side door opened, an officer grabbed hold of Jason and forcibly moved him towards the entrance. Jason winced as something hit him in the side of the head. He turned to the right and saw that several crowd members had followed them into the alley and were now throwing debris at him. He looked down and saw that it was a small chunk of concrete that had struck him. He imagined that if he were able to touch the side of his head with his hand, it would return with blood on his fingers. Get back! shouted one of the guards as Jason moved inside the building. He was escorted up two flights of stairs to the circuit court. He entered the courtroom through a side door before anybody else had been allowed inside. He took a seat on the left side of the room and was released from his handcuffs. He rubbed his wrists and sat back in his chair, taking a deep breath. The moment he'd feared since the day he'd been arrested had arrived. The trial started 15 minutes later. Jason spent a lot of time scanning the crowd. He'd expected Allison to be there but found that she was nowhere to be seen. Neither was Dave. Where were they? He'd find out soon enough. The day's first order of business caught Jason completely off guard. The prosecution had decided to drop the charges against him in the Norman slayings. 
We feel that the evidence we've compiled in the murder of his parents is more than sufficient, Michael Dorr, Marinette County's prosecuting attorney, said to Judge Donnelly at the start of the trial. Jason's attorney, Barry Connors of the practice Connors and Hill, leaned over and whispered, They don't have enough evidence to tie you to those murders. With no bodies, they'd have a hard time convincing a jury that you were responsible for their deaths, as well as your parents. Can we use this? Jason asked, feeling the first glimpse of hope in months. Don't know, Barry said. It all depends on the jury. They might see it as a moment of weakness, but, then again, they might see it as an act of compassion from the prosecution. I'll have to see how this plays out. Rest assured, however, I'll try to use this to my advantage. Jason hoped that was true. Motion aside, the prosecution presented their case in relentless fashion. Michael Dork called witness after witness, asking them questions about Jason's temper and relationship with his parents. Each witness said exactly what the prosecution had been hoping for, creating a tale where Jason had absolutely no control of his anger and hated his parents to no end. To Jason's lawyer's credit, Barry did try fighting back. Barry tried to get the witnesses to admit that they were exaggerating or flat-out lying. He asked them questions that made them pause. Unfortunately, each one stuck to their stories. I'd like to call my next witness, Michael Dorr said to the judge. The prosecution calls David Grimes to the stand. Jason spun around as the doors opened and Dave Grimes walked through. Jason sat in horror as his best friend walked towards the witness stand, took his oath, and sat where he'd been instructed to sit. At no point did he make eye contact with Jason. Dave, just like everybody else, told the jury that he had a temper that couldn't be controlled. There were many occasions where I was afraid of what he might do, Dave told the jury. When he snapped, we all just stood back until we knew he'd calmed enough to be talked to. Is that what happened on the day in question? Michael asked. Is that what happened when he attacked Nathan Paulson? Dave looked at Michael for a few seconds. A small frown spread across his lips as he spoke. Jason attacked him because he did something to Allison Rouse, Dave said. That's it? Michael asked. Why isn't he asking about what Nathan did? Jason asked himself. He's ignoring what Nathan did to her. And why is Dave playing along? Why is he helping them? He wanted to scream out, but that wouldn't help anything. If he were going to yell out, he'd have to pick a better spot. That's it, Dave said. He turned to Nathan and started swinging. I've seen him angry before, but never like what he was like that day. He was like a totally different person. I couldn't go near him because I was afraid. You're three inches taller than me and outweigh me by sixty pounds, he screamed in his mind. He wanted to shout it out. Who would care if the judge would hold him in contempt? How could anybody believe that Dave could be afraid of him? They'd fought once before, back in fourth grade. That fight hadn't lasted long. Dave had beaten him senseless. Jason noticed that there was something strange in the way Dave looked at Michael Dorr. There was something in his face that looked familiar. Was it resentment? Was it anger? Jason couldn't quite put his finger on it, but there was something definitely going on there that he didn't understand. After Michael was finished, Barry tried to get Dave to change his story, bringing up things from the past. Isn't it true that you and Jason Wrangle are best friends? Barry asked. That's true, Dave answered, glancing at Jason for a very brief moment. There was another look in there, possibly sorrow. Had Jason actually seen that? We've been best friends for as long as I've known him. Then why are you so afraid of him? 
Barry asked as he stood in front of the jury members. It seems to me that if he's your best friend, then there would be no reason to be afraid of him. I know that I've never been afraid of mine. Do you care to explain? Dave didn't answer him for a long time. He stood motionless, refusing to look at Barry. Mr. Grimes, may I remind you that you're under oath? Please answer the question, Judge Donnelly commanded. It's complicated, Dave said, finally looking towards Barry. You don't know what it's like to be friends with him. There's a lot more to it than you understand. There are a lot of things that none of you could possibly understand. Barry seemed to consider this for a moment and then said, I have no further questions, Your Honor. Dave got off the stand, walking past Jason without looking his way. Jason stared at Dave, trying to figure out what was happening. Something glistened in the light, on the right side of Dave's face, just below his eye. Was that a tear? It was hard to tell. One second he saw it, the next he couldn't. Dave disappeared from the courtroom, walking out the door. He was certain that he'd never seen Dave cry before. As the door stood open for a few seconds, Jason saw something that made his stomach go sour. Dave was talking with Nathan Paulson. Dave said something to Nathan, who was nodding, then turned and walked away. Jason didn't need to hear what Michael Dorr was going to say to know that Nathan Paulson was next. Nathan entered the courtroom, walking with a certain amount of cockiness that reminded Jason of how much he loathed him. He could feel that old memory of hate creep over him. Nathan's eyes met his as a smile spread across his face, the one that Nathan gave when he had you dead to rights. Jason now knew that something was up, and that Nathan might be behind it, or was a major player in it. He took the stand, sitting in the chair, and unlike Dave, he never took his eyes off Jason. Mr. Paulson, Michael said, would you mind telling me what happened on the day that the defendant allegedly killed his parents? I'm sure the court would like to know exactly what he did to you. I was walking to school, minding my own business, when he started talking about what happened to the Normans, Nathan said. His voice was different. He sounded younger, like a little child who was trying to portray their innocence after they'd done something wrong. I didn't even want to talk about it, but he kept bringing it up. He wanted to know what I saw or heard. I told him that I didn't know anything, but he kept talking. What about when you got to school? Michael asked. More of the same, Nathan said. He was telling people in our geometry class about the Normans. I thought he might have been mocking their deaths with the way he seemed to be gloating. I tried to get involved, but his girlfriend stopped me. Who would that be? Allison Rouse, he said. Those two are hot for each other, I tell you. She protected him and tried to put her hands on me for standing up to him. She tried attacking me. I turned to fight him when I accidentally struck Allison. He became enraged, pounding on me with everything he had while I tried to make sure that Allison was okay. He didn't care. He pounded on me while I was defenseless until I couldn't move. You were taken to the hospital? Yes, I was, Nathan confirmed. I had major injuries that he gave me. He extended a finger towards Jason. I had to spend two nights in the hospital because of the concussion and broken nose that he gave me. I didn't know where I was for hours. Barry tapped Jason on the shoulder and gave him a thumbs up. What was that all about? 
had Barry figured something out? I will forever be afraid of Jason Rangel after what he did to me, Nathan said. I was told by my doctor that I might not be able to play football anymore after the concussion I suffered. They say that I'm at an elevated risk of receiving another one, possibly more serious. Michael returned to his seat and grabbed several photographs from the table. I'd again like to refer to Exhibit D, Michael said, then turned to the jury. These are the photographs that the police took of Jason Rangel's fist on the night he was arrested. These photographs show the knuckles of a man who's been in a fist fight, just as the specialist has already told this court. The other photo is of Nathan and how he looked following the fist fight. Jason bowed his head. Those damn photos were going to be the end of him. Did Jason do this to you? Michael asked, showing the picture of Nathan to the jury. Yes, Nathan replied, looking and sounding ashamed. No further questions, Michael said, already walking to his seat. Barry immediately stood and walked up front as Michael Dorr sat down. Mr. Paulson. Nathan, right? Barry asked. Nathan nodded. Nathan, you mentioned that you received a severe concussion at the hands of my client. That's right, Nathan said, taking his eyes off Jason for the first time. He looked at Barry with contempt. I didn't know where I was for a few hours. If that's true, Barry began, then how are you able to remember what happened at the time of the alleged attack? I'm well aware of concussions and how they affect your brain. Objection, Your Honor, Michael Dorr shouted, getting to his feet. Mr. Connors is not a doctor. How could he possibly know about concussions? Before the judge could consider this, Barry spoke. Prior to law school, I went to med school, Barry said. While I may not have my Ph.D., I do have a very good knowledge of concussions and many other head wounds. Judge Donnelly seemed to consider this for several seconds before saying, I'll allow it. Please continue. Michael sat down, looking extremely upset. Where was I? Barry asked. Oh, yes. Doesn't it seem strange that you remember what happened to you, even when you don't remember where you were for several hours following the attack? It seems highly unlikely that you would remember the attack at all. You calling me a liar? Nathan asked, standing up. Please sit down, Judge Donnelly ordered. Nathan sat down, but didn't stop glaring at Barry. I'm not calling you a liar, Barry said. That's not up to me to decide. What I'm trying to do is give a proper portrayal of what you went through. If your injury is as severe as you're attempting to lead us to believe, then you have to admit that you might not remember the actual alleged attack as well as you'd have us believe. He paused. I'd like to remind you that you're under oath. Nathan didn't say anything for several seconds before speaking. I'll admit that there were many things that are a bit hazy, Nathan said through gritted teeth. No further questions, Barry said, then walked back to Jason with a smile on his face. Barry had done it. He'd created disbelief in Nathan's statement. Who would have thought that a court-appointed attorney could have gone to med school? The only problem was that Dave, as well as others, had already testified to the court a version of the incident that was a lot closer to what Nathan was saying than to what actually happened. Nathan walked away from the stand, keeping his eyes on Jason until he was past him. He disappeared through the exit and out of Jason's life. Good riddance. The prosecution rests, Your Honor, Michael Dorr said, interrupting Jason's hatred. Mr. Connors, you may call your first witness, Judge Donnelly said. 
Leaning over and whispering into Jason's ear, Barry said, Don't be mad at me. For what? Barry didn't answer him. Instead, he stood and said, The defense would like to call Allison Rouse to the stand. The fury inside Jason returned in a tidal wave. He glared at Barry, ready to tear his head off. Now he knew why he hadn't seen Allison yet. She'd been on the witness list and couldn't enter the courtroom until her testimony was finished. He'd hoped to keep her out of it. She'd told him during her visit that she would do whatever it took to keep him out of prison. He'd hoped that it wouldn't have to come to that. He'd hoped to keep her nose clean in all of this. What would happen if she testified on his behalf and he still wound up going to prison? She'd likely become an outcast in Niagara, perhaps being driven right out of town. He couldn't allow that. But what could he do about it? I don't want her testifying, Jason whispered to Barry, who wasn't paying any attention to him. He'd become focused on the door. Do you hear me? He turned around as the door swung open once more. Allison Rouse stepped inside the courtroom. He stared at her, his anger forgotten, as her beauty dulled all other emotion. He wanted to get up and run to her, but knew that he couldn't. The bailiff would take him away in cuffs before he could get within ten feet of her. He wanted to touch her, needed to hold her. She'd promised that they'd go on one date when this was over, if it ever was over. He wanted that more than anything. He dreamed of that moment for years and wondered what it would be like to kiss those luscious lips. She walked past, smiling at him as she did. There was something in that smile that was more wonderful than anything he'd ever experienced. All of the hurt and frustration from the last few months melted away in a single instant as he lost himself in her warm gaze. Allison took her oath, then sat behind the witness stand. As Nathan had done before, she watched him as she spoke. Barry wasn't a great lawyer, but he seemed to have somewhat of an idea of what he was doing. Bringing Allison on the stand was risky, but he chose all the right questions. What is your relationship with the accused? Barry asked. We're very good friends, she answered in a calm voice. Have you been friends all that long? A few months. Why such a short amount of time? I hadn't gotten to know him very well until recently. Why is that? Barry asked. School pressure, she answered, sighing. We come from two totally different social groups. With the unfortunate difference in social status, we really never got the chance to talk all that much. We saw each other, sure, but that's as far as it went. What changed? He saved me. Saved you? Saved you from what, exactly? From Nathan Paulson, she said, causing a murmur to go through the crowd, as well as the jury. Nathan Paulson attacked me. Jason fought him after he hit me. She pointed at the side of her head. He stood up for me when nobody else in that class would. Nathan is a lot bigger than I am. As far as I'm concerned, I owe Jason some respect. So you're saying that Nathan Paulson was the instigator in that fight on the day in question? Yes, she said, smiling her warm smile to Barry, then to the jury. She was good at this. Nathan attacked me, and Jason fought him off. That's exactly how it happened. I see, Barry said. What about what led to the fight? Was something happening that led to the prom between yourself and Nathan? He was bragging about seeing Jesse Norman and his parents while they were being wheeled out of their houses on stretchers, she answered. 
he kept telling everybody about the blood he'd seen. So, you're saying that Nathan instigated the conversation about the Normans? Yes, Allison answered. No further questions, Your Honor, Barry said. Michael Dorr was quick to his feet. Ms. Rouse, would you say that Jason lost his temper that day? Michael asked. Yeah, I guess so. He was very upset, but he seemed... So, what you're saying is that Jason lost control of his temper during that fight? Michael asked, interrupting her. Well, yes, but it isn't like... And isn't it true that the two of you are actually more than friends? Jason saw that she was becoming visibly flustered with the way he kept cutting her off. For the first time since she'd entered the courtroom, her smile had diminished. We're friends, Allison told Michael. It's kind of hard to date someone that's wrongfully sitting behind bars. I'm not asking you for your opinion, Miss Rouse. I'm asking you about your relationship with the defendant. Now, isn't it true that there's more to your relationship with the accused than just a casual friendship? The subject has come up about a date, she said, continuing with her honesty. It's nothing more than talk at this point, at least until you realize that he didn't commit the crimes you think he did. Again, may I remind you that your opinion is not relevant in this case, Miss Rouse, Michael said, a little louder this time. He was angry. These are simple questions that require simple answers. Can you handle that? Yes, she said, staring at Michael. She was visibly angry as well. Good. Then I'll ask once again. Have you thought about dating him? Yes, but I don't understand how this question is. Miss Rouse, he interrupted once more. I'm trying to make this jury aware of your personal connection to the accused. We just want to make sure that your responses aren't fueled by your emotions for him. It's not that way at all, Allison said, her voice taking on her anger for the first time. I'm telling you the truth. I'm sure you are, Michael said with a bit of arrogance. And I suppose that the four or five witnesses that I provided that all told the same story are liars. I don't know what they said, but I'm telling you the truth. No further questions, Your Honor, Michael said, walking back to his seat. Are you going to fix this? Jason asked Barry, whispering so that they couldn't be overheard. Barry turned to look at him with a defeated look on his face and said, I'm sorry, kid, but I don't know how to fix this. He then spoke to the judge, much louder than before. I have no questions, Your Honor. Judge Donnelly told Allison she could leave. She walked past Jason and mouthed, I'm so sorry. He smiled at her, knowing that she did her best. The trial went by quickly, ending on the third day of testimony. It wasn't until the attorneys gave their closing arguments that things became interesting. The prosecution went first. Michael Dore went over every minute detail of the last three days, repeating a shortened version of each witness's testimony against Jason. He continuously pointed out how each of their statements were eerily similar, then questioned Allison's motives for her statement. Jason listened to each and every word, fixated on the lies and deceit that Michael told. Then Michael talked about the bodies of his parents. This was when things really got interesting. I know how highly unusual it is to have a murder trial when there are no bodies, Michael said slowly, making sure that each word had an appropriate amount of emphasis. I'm well aware that the defense is going to spin you a tale about how you cannot convict somebody of murder when there are no murder victims to be seen. Let me assure you that there are murder victims. 
Mary and Gary Rangel, loving parents and proud members of their community, are dead because of their son, an out-of-control, angry teenager. You don't need the bodies to convict Jason. I've presented more than enough evidence over the past couple of days to ensure that you can find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Niagara's chief of police has testified that he saw the bodies. Just because we don't have the bodies here doesn't mean that the crime didn't happen. You're supposed to convict Jason beyond a reasonable doubt. Let me tell you what reasonable doubt is. What if Mary and Gary Rangel walked into this courtroom right now? Let's look at our watches for the next 10 seconds and see if they come in. The room became deathly quiet as most heads turned towards the door. Not Jason, though. He saw no point in looking for something that would never happen. His parents weren't going to be walking through that door. His mother and father were dead. Michael Dorr wasn't going to somehow bring his parents back from the dead and have them walk through those doors. It just wasn't going to happen. You see, they're not coming. Michael continued, We have the evidence, we have the blood, and we have the scissors. Let's not forget that those scissors, carried by the defendant, were found with blood from both his mother and father all over them. There's little more I can say. This case speaks for itself. Jason Rangel is guilty. I'm not going to waste your time, ladies and gentlemen, beating on a dead horse. He's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Here's your chance to put a cold-hearted killer behind bars for the rest of his miserable existence. Michael Dorr was more convincing than Jason would have liked. That little waiting stunt, as stupid as it may have seemed, was very well done. He obviously got through to the jurors with that trick. It was going to take a major performance from Barry Connors to get out of this unscathed. Unfortunately... That didn't happen. You can't send my client to prison based on the evidence that Michael Dorr has provided, Barry said to the jury. Everything he said to you is based on theory, not fact. There are no bodies because somebody other than my client took them. There is a conspiracy against my client that goes beyond normal guilt and innocence. This conspiracy is a witch hunt against my client. Yes, he has anger issues. And maybe this alleged confrontation with his parents did happen. That doesn't mean that he killed them. Jason bowed his head in shame. There was a reason why this man was a court-appointed attorney. He was adequate, but not good enough to get the job done. His closing statement wasn't convincing. Jason felt his last hopes flutter away. It was all over. The jury was sent away to deliberate. When they returned 45 minutes later... It wasn't difficult to know what their verdict would be. Have the members of the jury reached a verdict? Judge Donnelly asked the 12 members of the jury shortly after they returned from deliberating. Yes, we have, said the jury foreman. Please read the verdict, Judge Donnelly ordered, then turned to Jason. Would the defendant please rise? Jason stood, his heart feeling as if it were going to beat right out of his chest. This was it. It all came down to this. It was do-or-die time, and his life hung in the balance. The jury foreman took a deep breath before speaking. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty on all counts. The crowd behind Jason erupted into a chorus of cheers. Jason bowed his head, his worst nightmare becoming a reality. Bailiff, please remove the defendant from my courtroom. 
Judge Donnelly ordered. The bailiff approached with a set of handcuffs. Jason held out his arms, all fight gone from him. Everything seemed like a nightmare, too strange to be real. Unfortunately, it was real. He was living his nightmare. The bailiff slapped the cuffs on him, making sure they were snug. Jason grimaced, but hardly noticed. Jason Wrangle, the teenager who'd narrowly survived a fight with his parents' killer, was now a convicted felon. The bailiff led him to the door from which he'd entered each of the previous three days. Leaving the courtroom, he heard the cheers and thought about how much he would love to make them pay. If only they could understand the truth. Jason Wrangle left the courtroom as a convicted murderer. Chapter 24 Two lifetime sentences. It was too good to be true. Chief of Police Randy Thompson sat at his desk, relishing in the fact that everything had gone the way he'd intended it to. Not only had Jason been convicted of murder, he'd just been sentenced to two consecutive life sentences with no chance of parole. Not only was he going to prison, he was never getting out. He chuckled at his victory. To think that the guilty verdict came because a single juror watched Jason extra closely. It was just too funny. When Michael Dorr had asked for ten seconds to see if the Ringles would enter the courtroom, almost everybody, including Randy, looked towards the door. Everybody, however, didn't include two people. One of the jurors watched Jason. When everybody else was looking at the door, Jason kept staring straight ahead. He knew that they weren't coming, the jurors said later. They didn't need to look because he already knew that they were dead. It was like painting a big guilty sign on his forehead. There still was another killer out there that hadn't been caught. Now that Jason was behind bars, it was safe to pursue that angle. It could be months, maybe even a year, before Jason could get an appeal going, and it would do him little good, especially when new evidence was bound to surface if they caught the accomplice. For Randy, this case wasn't closed. Not by a long shot. He wasn't exactly sure how he was going to go about capturing the accomplice. As far as he knew, the accomplice was still hiding in the Houghton area. There had been only one more death and one disappearance since he'd received that newspaper at his front door. As with his case, the body had disappeared. It was all too precise to be coincidence. Even if the authorities in Houghton were unable to make the connection, or maybe they were just unwilling. As far as they were still concerned, it was a copycat killer. No, this was the real deal. This was the killer who'd taken out Officer Jim Hendricks at the scene of the Wrangle murders. He'd even gone so far as to break into the morgue and make two other officers disappear, as well as the Wrangle bodies that following morning. He was still out there somewhere and was still killing. There was a knock at the door. Come in, Randy said. The door swung open and Officer Brad Collenbach stepped into the office. He sat down across from Randy and looked at him with a strange look on his face. What? Oh, like you didn't know, Brad said, his strange expression turning into one of excitement. You can't honestly say that you didn't know about the television piece that they were running on you. Oh, that thing, Randy said modestly. I knew that they were putting a segment together. They never actually told me when it was going to air. Two weeks earlier... Randy had done an interview with a television reporter from Channel 5 News out of Green Bay. They walked with him most of the day, filming everything he did. Nothing important happened that day, 
but that didn't deter the fact that Channel 5's viewers would be interested in the man who had brought down Jason Rangel. Brad tossed the VHS cassette onto the desk. My wife films most of the newscasts, in the event I end up on it for some reason or another, Brad said. She told me to watch it. I must say, you look pretty impressive. Oh, I'm sure you're exaggerating. No, I'm not, Brad said. And to think that you're thinking about running for Congress. Why didn't you tell me? What? Yeah, the lady that interviewed you said that you were considering running for Congress. I never said that, Randy told him. Look for yourself, Brad said as he grabbed the cassette from the desk. He walked across the room to the television and VCR. He slid the cassette into the VCR and pressed play. He turned on the television and stepped back. Here we go. The tape started with Debbie Jenkins of Channel 5 News. The interview went much of the way he'd remembered, centering around what had happened in the Jason Rangel case and what he had to go through to make sure that he would spend the rest of his life behind bars. They showed details of Jason's history and switched to interviews with other people, including some who said how much they appreciated Randy for his work in getting a murderer off the streets. Randy swelled with pride as one after another spoke about him. The screen switched back to Debbie as she gave her last few thoughts. As good of a job as Officer Thompson has done in small-town Niagara, Debbie began, does not properly explain this man's true potential. With congressional candidates making their intentions known in the coming months, it seems highly likely that we could be looking at the region's newest member of the House of Representatives. Although he has not officially announced his candidacy, my inside sources tell me that he is strongly considering taking the post, seeing as the incumbent is retiring at the end of his term. Good luck, Randy. For Channel 5 News, I'm Debbie Jenkins. Brad stopped the tape, then returned to his seat. Randy stared at the blank screen, not knowing what to say or even think. He'd never thought about the possibility of running for the House of Representatives. The thought hadn't even been a blip on his radar, but now that he had thought about it for a few seconds, he kind of liked the idea. Representative Randy Thompson. The name had a certain ring to it that made him feel good. I don't know how serious you are about this, but I think you'd make one hell of a representative, Brad said. The only reason that you'd want me to do that would be because you'd likely be in line to take this job, Randy said, laughing as he said it. You going after my job? Yes, I am, Brad said. I've already had my nameplate made up. Chief of Police Brad Collenbach. Sounds a little long, but my wife likes it. He stood up turning towards the door. I have to go. Despite you being Superman, protecting the city from the forces of evil, some of us still have to go out on the streets and make sure that nobody runs a stop sign or throws eggs at the elderly. Brad left the room, closing the door behind him. Randy sat there, thinking about the revelation that Brad had presented him. Maybe it was a good idea. It was something he'd have to consider, especially with the popularity he now possessed. Putting Jason Rangel in prison was a career booster that most professionals could only dream of. He'd gotten very lucky that night when he'd wanted to re-examine the Norman murder scene. If he hadn't gone down the street at that exact moment and been stopped by Jason... Wait a second, Randy thought. Why exactly had he stopped me? He'd thought about it momentarily that night, but never really struck him until this moment. Why exactly had Jason stopped him that night? He'd run out to the road, yelling about his parents being murdered. Why would he have done that? 
Jason could have easily let him drive by, and he would have been none the wiser. It was pitch black outside, and there had been no guns fired, as one had been in the Norman killings. He'd killed his parents without making a sound, and was concealed in darkness. He could have fled the scene and been long gone before anybody discovered the bodies. Had Jason actually thought that he could throw him off the trail by coming forward and claiming there was somebody else? It seemed possible, but just how likely was it? He'd seen Jason's grades throughout high school and saw he'd always received very high marks and had been on the honor roll several times. The boy wasn't stupid by any stretch of the imagination. How could he have made such an error in judgment? The only thing he could think of was that he killed his parents and panicked. Maybe he felt guilt, something he may not have felt after killing the Normans. Maybe he rushed a story before he had a real chance to think about it. Whatever the reason was, it seemed out of character for Jason, even if he had a runaway temper. Why hadn't he thought about all of this before? He was supposed to be good at seeing through all of the bullshit, yet he hadn't even thought about what he'd actually seen that night. Jason had come to him. Randy was sure that he looked frightened. Sure, that could have meant that he was scared of what was going to happen now that his parents were dead, but what if that wasn't the case? What if he had done just as he'd said, running out of there because the man who'd killed his parents was chasing him? Randy had seen that scratch on the window, that deep cut that seemed as if somebody, or something, was trying to break in. Jason had been right about that too, and there was no way that he could have made it himself because he was inside the car. Sure, he could have gotten his accomplice to do it for him, but what if he hadn't? For the first time since he saw the bodies of Mary and Gary Wrangle, Doubt swirled in his mind like a tornado on a collision course with a trailer park. Something that he'd been so certain about just minutes before seemed far-fetched now. Why did that sound so stupid now? How could he have gone months with this idea stuck in his head that everything was as clear as day, and now suddenly he couldn't believe it anymore? What had once seemed so clear was now a murky haze, blanketing his sight. Had he made a mistake? If there was one character flaw in Chief of Police Randy Thompson... It was that he never admitted his mistakes. If this was something that he had missed out on, for whatever reason, he wasn't about to come clean about it. You don't move up on the totem pole by admitting every time you make a minor mistake. As cruel and evil as it seemed, this was no different. If this really was a mistake, that's all it really was. He had an opportunity to do some real good, especially now that it appeared that he had a real shot at becoming the next member of the House of Representatives. The idea that he was going to let Jason Rangel rot in prison while he prospered seemed alien to him, yet it was exactly what was going to happen. He'd made his bed and was now going to sleep in it. Nobody was going to investigate these murders any more than they had to, unless the murders returned to Niagara. He knew that wasn't going to happen. There was a supposed copycat killer lurking in the Houghton area, or maybe someplace else by now. He no longer had to worry about that part of it, and wouldn't have to unless the murders returned. He was confident that would never happen. The only problem he had was how could he have changed his mind so quickly on this case? He'd been celebrating the two life sentences not more than 20 minutes earlier. What had changed? He didn't know the answer to that. It felt like a veil had been lifted from over his eyes, giving him a clear vision of the world for the first time. That was ridiculous. He felt as crazy as Jason Rangel for thinking it. He took a deep breath, determining that this was just his guilt trying to get the best of him. He'd done everything right, hadn't he? 
He collected all of the evidence and arrested the proper suspect. Yes, that was absolutely right. He'd arrested the correct suspect. He had to get his guilt out of his mind. There was no way he was going to be able to live with guilt like this for the rest of his life. He had to forget about it and remember that all of the evidence pointed in Jason's direction anyway. A jury of 12 agreed with him, convicting Jason in less than an hour. Even if there was a slight chance that he'd been wrong, then it would be the jury's fault. It was their job to determine guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. It was obvious that there hadn't been any doubt in their minds. Otherwise, Jason Rangel would be walking free at this very moment rather than being on a bus heading for his new home in one of Wisconsin's finest prisons. He got up and walked to a cabinet behind the desk. He opened the cabinet and pulled a clear glass bottle out. He found a clean glass and poured some of the contents from the bottle into the glass. He took a drink, letting the sting in his throat remind him of who he was. Vodka always did that for him. It was a soul-cleansing drink. He smiled. He was going to be a congressman. Thoughts of Jason Rangel drifted away in the vodka's burn as thoughts of Washington, D.C. invaded his mind like a platoon on its way to a foreign capital. He was going to be a congressman. You've been listening to the Going Postal Cast. For updates about Christopher Chapman, his stories, and future podcast happenings, be sure to go to goingpostalpublishing.com. If you want to follow along on Twitter, twitter.com slash goingpostalpub, or like him at facebook.com slash goingpostalpublishing. This podcast is copyright 2012, Going Postal Publishing. 